Alright students, welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019, Lecture 30, Introductory Lecture on Dante's Paradiso 3, Cantos 7 through 9, The Spheres of Mercury and Venus. Alright, recall last time that we got to the second sphere of heaven, Mercury. Mercury named for Hermes, the Greek god and Roman god of transactions, of translation, of moving one thing from one place to another. And so he is the merchant god. See that word Mercury there. He is the mercantile god. He is the trading god. He is the language god. He is the stealing god. God, because you take one thing from one place to another. And therefore, this is the sphere of those who were uh, obscured or uh, rather marred by their ambition, but that the theological virtue which they attempted to embody was uh, hope. Recall that we also met Justinian last time, a Byzantine emperor who lived in the 6th century, and we talked quite a bit about the 6th canto and made some connections to 6 and book 6 and uh, uh, 666. And I think I said this to you, but I don't know if I laid it out for you in Roman numerals. Um, uh, why 666 is such an interesting number is that it is entirely unique in that it doesn't have any duplicated numbers in Roman numerals. Each number from 500 down to 1 is uh, represented only one, once. So the Roman numeral for 500 is D. The Roman numeral for 100 is C. The Roman numeral for 50 is L. Then 10 is X. Uh, 5 is I and I, or excuse me, 5 is V and I is 1. And so you see D, C, L, X, V, I, that's 666. And that in, in some way is supposed to correlate to a holy number, which is 515. I'm not exactly sure why 515 is holy, but uh, some uh, scholars make a manipulation with it that makes it look like the word dukes, which is where we get the word duke from, which uh, in Latin means leader. And so... Uh, there seems to be some connection between those numbers. In any case, I thought I'd just mention that because sometimes students are interested in numerology. All right. Now, the first argument that we're going to consider today in Mercury is why did God become man? We've talked about this quite a bit in preparation for our seminar. But uh, the argument that comes before that I, I think is actually very interesting, but I'm not going to ask you to replay it here. But you might want to talk about it in the seminar. It's, can you be justly punished for taking just vengeance? And the example that you might want to think of is Orestes. Orestes kills his mother... Clytemestra for killing his father, who is also the king of his land, and also uh, uh, gives Aegisthus, his uncle, the throne that should belong to him. So when Orestes takes vengeance on his mother Clytemestra, that is just, that is fair. But the question then becomes, can somebody then take vengeance on Orestes? And can the community or society itself take vengeance on him for murdering their queen? And the answer that Dante comes down with is, yes, if you justly take vengeance, yes, that is fair. But if, say, you kill someone's father who killed your mother, and he has a son, can that son then kill you justly? Yes. What does that result in, therefore? A never-ending cycle of violence. So instead of simply thinking about justice, at some point somebody has to do what? We call it be the bigger man. You have to show mercy. You have to forgive. And that's the only way that a cycle of violence ever ends, because if you justly take vengeance, sure, that's fair, but then somebody is totally within their rights to take vengeance on you. Perhaps you have a sibling and you know this sort of cycle of violence. Uh, and you've been told by a parent, your sibling steals one of your toys, you break their toy, they escalate the situation by then uh, sending an email from your account to the girl that you like, or something like that. And at some point, it just uh, you just have to put an end to that sort of thing. In any case, let's get to the major question of today. We will talk about... Uh, uh, differences between people and the relationship between the stars and human choice, continuing what we started in the Inferno with Bernetto Latini, talking to us in Canto 15 down there, moving on then to Canto 16, the Purgatorio, with Marco Lombardo telling us that free choice is actually important. And stars, we're going to see the actual connection between them uh, today when we get to the sphere of 
Venus. Uh, lots of interesting things. All right, the question is, why did God become man? And why is it that in killing God, man was forgiven rather than eternally damned? Okay, let's read the quote. And this is from yet a third translation, the Darling Martinez one, which I have in three volumes back there. Not the Mandelbaum that I often take from, nor uh, uh, the one that you're using by um, White. But, or Sisson, sorry, C.H. Sisson. But I shall quickly free your mind, this is Beatrice speaking, from doubt. And listen carefully, the words I speak will bring the gift of great truth and reach. That's how I should start every class. Since he could not endure the helpful curb on his willpower, the man who was not born, that's Adam, he was made, damning himself, damned all his progeny. This is the idea of original sin, that all humans are forever corrupt until the time of Jesus, uh, who then redeemed them. So the idea is that you were born with an irredeemable sin that you could never get rid of, and that's why every character from before the time of Jesus was sent directly to hell before the heroine of hell that uh, Dante describes during the time of the Malabranche, when we found out that that one bridge was collapsed from the earthquake that happened during the death of Jesus before he went down to hell and took some people out. And actually, we're going to have a second reference to the heroine of hell today when we talk about the first person sent up to heaven, who was, surprise, surprise, a prostitute, a Jewish prostitute named Rahab. All right, in any case, <clears throat> for this, mankind lay sick in the abyss of a great error for long centuries until the word of God, that's Jesus, willed to descend, also called the Logos in Greek, if you want to think some interesting thoughts, to where the nature that was sundered from its maker was united to his person by the sole act of his eternal love. That's his own personal sacrifice. When he sacrificed himself for man, man and uh, the word of God, therefore God, became one again, and man was then relieved of original sin. Uh, there are big theological debates about this ever since the Reformation. Uh, Protestants believe sort of uh, that that worked out perfectly. Catholics, uh, not so much, not so much. And there are still uh, huge debates between what uh, redeems a person, works or faith. Do you have to do things, or do you just have to believe things? And you can get a lot more sophisticated than that, but that's sort of the essence of the argument. Now set your sight on what derives from that. This nature, thus united to its maker, Human nature, united to the divine nature, was good and pure, even as when created. But in itself, this nature had been banished from paradise. Uh, humans obviously live in the world, not in uh, Eden. Because it turned aside from its own path, from truth, from its own life. So apparently people, uh, uh, we didn't stay on the right path. Thus, if the penalty the cross inflicted is measured by the nature he assumed, no one has ever been so justly sung. Okay, so that's very interesting. Though. This is talking about Jesus being put on a cross and saying that because he had the nature of a god... The fact that he is unjustly killed by humans is the most unjust thing that could possibly happen that ever did happen, because uh, the idea is that this happened in history at some point. Yet none was ever done so great a wrong, that's Jesus God, if we regard the person made to suffer, he who had gathered, gathered in himself that nature, that nature is of course the divine nature, God nature. Thus from one action issued uh, differing things. God and Jews were pleased by the one death. Um, this is a part of sort of uh, Dante's anti-Semitism. You recall that he named the lowest... Uh, section of hell, Judeca, which uh, has some relation to uh, uh, a community of Semites. And also, you recall that Caiaphas, the high priest of the, the, the Jews, was then blamed alongside Pontius Pilate for uh, the death of Jesus and was horizontally crucified down in the Inferno. Well, we see this here, too. The Jews were pleased, he says, because uh, they were, uh, alongside the Romans, the people that put him to death, Jesus to death. But God also, because this was part of his providential plan, sort of like Zeus's providential plan to have... Um, uh, his son Sarpedon died by Patroclus' hand, and then Hector died by his hand, and then Achilles uh, killed Hector, and then Achilles died, and then Troy fall. Similar-ish idea in any case. Uh, earth trembled, that's talking about the earthquake that happened at the moment of death for Jesus, for that death in heaven opened. You need no longer find it difficult to understand 
what it is said that just vengeance was then avenged, avenged by a just court. All right, what does that mean? All right, here's a pretty picture and a quote by St. Athanasius, who seems to understand this quote. God became man in order that men may become God. Interesting. All right, here's the argument. Let's lay it out. We have to structure this right. Dante first describes Jesus as God descended to earth as a man. He then claims that God as a man must be the most just creature on earth, most possible, because he has a divine nature and a mortal frame. The only reason that he becomes mortal is so that he can be killed. Uh, and, but there is a plan to this. It's not just about... And therefore, that to kill uh, this living God, this Jesus, this word-made flesh, would be the most unjust slash unfair act possible. Lines 43 to 45 in Canto 7. How then does his death, this is a good question, remove sin from man rather than forever blacken his soul slash make up for that which is unforgivable? So if we think in conventional terms of justice, if man does something unforgivable, all man is damned for all time with no chance of redemption by man. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's not the way that Dante's going to go with this argument. Now, and I know I'm going to have to go fast. You will be sent these slides, but do try and represent them very quickly here. Um, uh, because it's hard for me to keep this in mind and not go at the pace I need to. Uh, so Jesus, therefore, word of God, God made man, is the most just man on earth. Justice involves giving to each his due. And therefore, as God, he would deserve uh, eternal rewards. But he's given death, so not, not given what he's due. Injustice is thus done to him. Therefore, Jesus deserves the greatest reward which can be given, as I was saying, but he was killed unjustly. So he was given the worst reward possible. Now here's where a transition comes. See if you follow. But for the most charitable act possible, which is for a mortal person, the sacrifice of the thing they only have one of, their own life, self-sacrifice of life, one's most valuable com commodity, um, uh, one has to die. Now, this is unforgivable by man. So, uh, if this God is done the harm of being killed in order to give charity, that's good uh, for the God to give that charity, but uh, at, at the moment in this argument, man seems sort of unforgivable. Let's keep going, see if we can uh, work our way out of that difficulty. And since a God, and this God is the greatest God, uh, uh, according to Dante in this tradition, is the greatest being in creation, and therefore does not need or desire any charity or gift from man. He could not have become man in order to receive something from man. What can you give to a God if it's already perfect and immortal? You can't give it anything. And so, did he come to earth just to suffer? Um, uh, or for some, some bigger, grander reason? Obviously some bigger, grander reason. In fact, to give him anything other than killing him, or doing what appears ultimately unjust, would have limited the grace or of his gift in return to man. That's sort of interesting. So, if man had not done the worst thing possible to God, then God could not have given the greatest possible gift. Because the act of forgiveness that God gives, because he is forgiving something unforgivable by man, and the most unforgivable act possible, logically speaking, makes the gift that God gives to man even greater. That's so interesting. So that the worst thing has to be done possible to God, so that the best thing possible can be given from God. It is essentially the ultimate act of mercy and the least fair thing that has ever happened what a man is given by God, which is a, a profound argument. Because as he is the greatest being, and giving the greatest charity would befit the greatest being, that means uh, is suitable to the greatest being, as it is the greatest virtue, God therefore gives the greatest charity 
possible to give something only a god can give to a creature that uh, is totally undeserving of it because it actually chose to kill the giver of that gift. Uh, and I, as I said uh, yesterday, I know that I said it in your class, this is actually uh, even worse than uh, if Santa were coming down your chimney, you lit a fire underneath, burned him alive, and then he still gave you gifts afterwards. It's essentially a, a, a vulgar way of putting this argument. But um, it is correct as well. And in order for God to give this charity, man had to commit the ultimate sin, which is of killing a being superior to itself, ontologically. Uh, uh, killing a God. Or to choose against God, which means his own nature, in a way, if you uh, accept the argument from the top of the purgatorio, that the divine nature and the human nature are all one and joined together, in order that God may forgive him for turning his back on us. And this makes sense. Because if God repaid an injury for an injury... God would have been injured by man. But as, by definition, a perfect being, God cannot be injured by man. And so uh, the reason he came to earth must not have been injured, and he was not injured, but in order to give a gift to man. Uh, uh, but uh, just a correlate to add to this is, it's not as if the people that killed Jesus could have known that they were not doing an injury to somebody. This is part of the quote that says that both the Jews and God were made happy by the death of Jesus. Obviously, the people that killed this character of Jesus wanted this man to die, and also did not accept the fact that he was a god, uh, which is still not accepted by uh, Jewish uh, people. I, and it's a very big difference in the two faiths of uh, Christianity, whether it be uh, Catholic or Protestant, and uh, Judaism. So man, in acting against God, simply acts against himself. He besmirches himself. He injures himself. He denigrates himself by doing this. Well, who can raise man back up again? Well, the answer is not man. Um, God, therefore, could not suffer an injury from man, as by definition, a perfect being, but as the ultimate force in the universe, he could forgive man for what appeared to be the ultimate crime. Because since there was no injury, there, uh, and I'm being sort of legalistic here, technically was no crime. Without, and that's sort of a legal definition. Without injury, there's no crime. Uh, we have a vulgar expression for that, but I, uh, uh, no harm, no foul in our language. No harm, no foul. Um, you are God, Psalm 82, 6. You are all the sons of the Most High. Interesting. In any case. Um, I, I guess, do I want to say one last thing? Let me just try and uh, briefly put it, because I know you had to write down quite a bit. God becomes man to be killed by man, so that man denigrates himself to the lowest possible position in the universe. God then gives the ultimate act of charity, which is to forgive a being for killing a superior being that literally came to earth to give it the greatest gift. The reason why the greatest gift is charity from God to man is that man cannot provide his own forgiveness because man cannot forgive himself for killing a being superior to himself. Only the being that was superior to him that he killed can forgive him, and it does. And therefore, God comes to earth to die so that mankind can be forgiven, receive grace from God, and be uh, uh, and uh, unbesmirched from the stain of original sin. The idea is that God allows himself to be killed by man to uh, raise man up, to make man better, to uh, infuse man with the value of, uh, say, a living God. And uh, I, as I told you, that is, uh, this argument is the basis for the idea of individual rights that is maintained in Western democracies, including our own. The reason why you have due process uh, is based essentially on this argument, that uh, you all have the dignity of something which is divine, will someday die, but that you must be treated with rights 
because you are uh, you are uh, holy, you are divine in a certain way, and uh, we have full courts that will protect your rights because of that belief. And um, well, that's why I give you this very sophisticated, technical, and difficult argument. I know it's very tough to follow. Uh, we will probably not ever have a, an argument as hard to follow as this, even in the Paradiso. Okay, all right, good. Let's move on. Now, there is an additional argument for why could man not raise himself back up. I'm just going to quote this to you very quickly. I don't want you to write this down because I know that you're already uh, uh, struggling with this, but man could not within his limits ever atone. That means make up for it. Since he could not descend with obedient humility afterwards. It means uh, the, the crime is too big for him to atone for. As far as in his disobedience he earlier intended to rise up. And this is the reason why man was excluded from being able to atone by himself. Uh, because he he killed a being superior to himself, a god. He attempted to be as a god. But a human cannot be as a god in that particular respect. And so a uh, man like the giants attacking Olympus attempted to go beyond his own nature. But in so doing, he denigrated himself rather than elevating himself. So in order to be elevated or forgiven or uh, uh, unmarred by this, the superior being killed by him had to forgive him for the unforgivable act. Uh, which I know is very complicated, but that is, that's the story. Um, and therefore it was left to God to restore man to the fullness of life, I say with one or else with both his ways. But because a work is the more pleasing to the workman, the more it expresses the goodness of heart from which it issues, the divine goodness that stamps the world was happy to proceed by all its ways to raise you up again. And so the nature of God is charity. And so the ultimate act of charity is something that uh, this God wanted to do. And so uh, the worse the crime committed by man, the better the act of charity that can be given, the, uh, the more manifest is God in the world, is literally the idea of this argument. Nor between the last night and the first day has there been, or will there be, so high and so magnificent a going forth by either way. And which essentially means you're not getting an argument that's sophisticated and difficult. Again, because nothing like this has ever happened since or before, because this is the ultimate thing that can possibly happen. Is... Actually, the claim that Dante's making, that the ultimate thing that could happen in the world happened uh, about 1,300 years, or mm, 1,270 years before he, uh, uh, before he set the Inferno, about 2,000, or sorry, 1,990 years for us, because we're in 2020 now. And uh, Jesus supposedly died when he was 33, so I guess 1987. For God was more liberal in giving himself in order to make mankind sufficient to raise itself up than if he had simply forgiven, and all other ways fell short of justice if the Son of God, Jesus had not humbled himself to become flesh. All right, good. Um, so I'm gonna, so therefore, God could have forgiven man, but died to give man the ability to redeem himself by his own choices. All right. Uh, and because God's nature is charity, God may then give the ultimate charity, which is forgiveness to man for attempting to be more than God by uh, killing uh, God. All right. Uh, hmm, hmm. Huh. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Venus. <laughs> very technical argument. I know it's very difficult. Uh, let's get some more... Um, uh, basic stuff now. Now, sphere three of Venus uh, occupies two cantos, eight and nine. We have a very long sphere that comes after this, sphere four of the um, theologians, the teachers, the scholars. And of course, they uh, take a long time. They have five cantos, 10 through uh, 15 or 14 or so. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Venus. A couple things about Venus. Venus is the final sphere obscured by the conical shadow of Earth, which means it is the final sphere that has a virtue that represents it, as well as a vice that slightly obscures it. The virtue is, of course, named for what Venus is god of. We recall that Venus is the Roman goddess of love, but really sort of lust, romantic love. 
She's based on Aphrodite, the Greek goddess, also of love. And uh, as we know from the figures of Helen and Dido, often it's the case that Venus or Aphrodite uh, uh, are involved in amorous affairs that lead to chaos amongst humans, sort of the opposite of what Zeus wants, which is also why Ares or Mars is such a fan of Venus, because they both cause chaos. Um, in any case, here in Venus, we find the lovers. We find the people that, uh, that very much loved love. We'll find a poet here, Falco de Marseille, who will remind us of Arnaud. Daniel, who was a little obscured by lust because he wrote love poems, which often uh, has, uh, you know, crude physical details. And then we'll meet a woman named Kunitsa da Romano, who had four different husbands during her life, as uh, during different parts of her life, and from very different stations, and also a host of different lovers. She was in love with love, as we would say. We'll even meet a temple prostitute here, who was the first person sent into uh, heaven. We'll get Dante's reasoning, and then I'll just give you a small, interesting detail from Matthew 1, 18, 19, about uh, Mary, about uh, 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 Jesus' mother. In any case, the virtue of this fear is love, also known as charity. The vice is lust. Now, characters that we're going to meet, like I said, in Canto 8, Charles Martel. He was the son of Charles II of Anjou. I'll talk about him a little more. He and Dante actually met during their life, and he does cite a poem by Dante. But um, they didn't know each other for very long, so it's sort of a special moment that Dante meets him up here. It shows that he, he made a big impact on Dante's life. Cunizza uh, da Romano, we see her 913 to 966. Uh, as I told you, she was known for being in love with love. Had four husbands, several lovers, including Sordello, the lion-like man we met in Canto 7 of uh, the Purgatorio, who was a man too, and who was a big fan of uh, Virgil, fell on his knees and all that. Uh, Foco de Marseille, uh, love poet, very much like Arnaud Daniel. And, and interestingly enough, we now have seen lust represented in uh, all three canticles. We saw uh, Francesca in, amongst the lustful in Canto 5 of the Inferno. We saw Arnaud Daniel and Guido Vinicelli in Canto 26, uh, burning uh, in fire um, amongst uh, the purgatorial spirits at the top of purgatory in Ontario 7. And now we've seen in uh, Cantos 8 and 9 uh, uh, lust and love represented. And again, love poets and love poetry represented. Apparently love poetry uh, can lead you to perdition, but it can also lead you to salvation if you take it in the uh, appropriate way. Uh, one other note to give to you is that Recall that Canto 9 in all three canticles is always a transitory um, uh, or a transition canto. Uh, in the Inferno, that's when we got to the Wall of Dis, went down into the deeper, darker parts of the Inferno. Canto 9 onto 10 is where we got to the gate of Purgatory and got onto the terraces of Purgatory, Purgatory proper, as we called it. And here we will pass uh, in Canto 9 from the third sphere, which is the last sphere of heaven, uh, marred by sin or by vice. Uh, Earth's conical shadow into the spheres that take shape. And the next four spheres will actually have specific shapes. The sun will be interlocking rings. Mars will be a cross made by angels. Uh, Jupiter will be an eagle. And Saturn will be a golden ladder. And then after that, things get a little bit uh, 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 trippier, honestly speaking. All right, and we'll also meet, uh, like I said, Fogo de Marseille, and then Rahab the prostitute. Um, all right, some major concepts. I don't need you to write these yet. Uh, we'll talk about Earth's shadow in the first three spheres. We'll talk about how sweet seed produces something so bitter. That's how does somebody with a good nature end up having a bad life or becoming a bad person or making bad choices? How could there be a society without differentiation of labor? There couldn't. We'd all have to be the same. And why are some people ill-suited to their professions or stations in life? And uh, also, how is Rahab uh, an allegory for the church? Remember, of course, that the church or the symbol of the church, the wagon pulled by the griffin at the top 
of the Purgatorio was itself converted into uh, the harlot or whore of Babylon who was beaten by the French kings represented by a giant. And so uh, we are prepared for that allegory. Okay, Charles Martel. A couple things to know about him. I'll uh, reiterate them now. These are facts you must know. Charles Martel. Charles Martel, in uh, sort of the French that, uh, that he would have spoken, died at the young age of 24. So another person who died young, unfortunately, like the Marcellus that we talked about from uh, Book 6 of the Aeneid, and also Beatrice herself. He speaks uh, from early in Canto 8 to 9, and is then followed by two additional speakers in Canto 9. He was the son of Charles II of Anjou. Recall he was a Guelph. We talked about him a little in the last lecture. King of Naples and Hungary and Provence. He emphasizes the role of providence over heredity. Uh, providence being the idea that uh, um, each person has a particular function in life, a particular sort of fate that they can fulfill, they don't need to fulfill. It is given to them by God. They do not simply take on the aspects of their parents. Uh, the idea being that you have two fathers. You have your actual father, your physical father, but you also have sort of a God father, which is uh, an idea that we still literally have. Um, and that Godfather is the one that uh, makes you who you really are, sees you for who you really are, and what you can really be. So regardless of uh, what your parents uh, think their relationship is to you, you have a purpose beyond their <coughs> definition, which I think in a democracy where individualism is very much um, uh, heralded these days, it's good to know that uh, just because somebody, even somebody very close to you, thinks that you are a certain something, doesn't mean that that's necessarily true. Maybe... Uh, you come from a long line of, say, like teachers. Last 11 generations have been teachers. Doesn't mean you have to be a teacher. You can be a doctor, you can be an engineer. We say that these days, but uh, Dante actually has an argument for why that is so. In any case, he only knew Dante for a very short time, which means that he made a big impact on Dante, and they showed great affection for each other. It's again one of those moments in um, <clears throat> the Divine Comedy where we have uh, sort of friends reunited, just like um, Casella and uh, Balacqua down on the shores of Purgatory, um, of course, when Statius meets uh, Virgil. One of these interesting moments. And even in heaven, apparently, there is some affection shared between people and very much appropriate to the sphere here of Venus, the sphere of affection or love. In any case, the second person we need to talk about is Konitsa da Romano. Notice again, we have that name of Rome in here, just like that Romeo Villanueva, or Dave Villanueva, from uh, Sphere of Mercury, uh, who received unjust come up in, so do we now have Canisa da Romano. And so, another reference to Rome. Well, she earned her Venusian fame by having several famous liaisons, that means uh, lovers, including the poet Sordello from Purgatory 7. Uh, she was married to four husbands, and as one might imagine, this made her a living legend in Florence in Dante's day. Just like somebody who is very amorous these days. Uh, she's sort of like a Marilyn Monroe figure, if you know much about her. She very famously uh, uh, was girlfriend to some very famous figures during her time, including, uh, supposedly, uh, JFK, which, if you're a conspiracy theorist, some people think that Jackie O uh, hired the assassin to take out JFK because of his famous liaison with Marilyn Monroe. Now, it's just a conspiracy theory, of course, but, you know, sometimes people, uh, sometimes those take on a life of their own. Um, so she seems to herself embody the connection between lust and affection. Uh, a scholar wrote this up for you, and I just want to kind of give you this background. Canita, uh, don't write this, I'll send it to you. Canita da Romano, who identifies herself as one who lived under the powerful influence of Venus, that's, saying, that's not saying much, embodies the more popular conception of a loving individual. Married for political advantage to a Guelph leader from Verona, which is the second place that, 
which is where uh, actually Dante went after he was exiled from um, from Florence. Went from Florence to Verona to Ravenna, where he died, where his bones still are, even though the Florentines would like him back. She was the lover for several years of the troubadour poet Sordello. We remember him. She later had a love affair with the knight Enrico da Bovio, with whom she traveled extensively after Enrico was killed in a battle between her brothers Alberico and Ezzelino. That's the same Ezzelino that we saw burning in hell in Canto 12 in the River of Blood, Phlegathon. Um, Canizza married a certain Count Imerio. Legend has it that following the Count's death, she married a nobleman from Verona. And later, after his death, her brother Ezzelino's astrologer from Padua. So people from very different classes of society. Astrology, obviously, not that high. The point is, as one of her early commentators put it, Canizza knew love during each state of, stage of her life. And this, she makes clear to Dante, is nothing to regret now. That she enjoys the blessedness of heaven. She thinks she lived a good life. She had a lot of love. And a very French way of looking at things. In fact, Canizza's moral compass appears to be well adjusted as she laments the devastation wrought by her violent brother, Ezzelino, who is in, amongst the murderers in hell. And she uh, emphasizes the importance of earning glory through excellence and the cries of corruption and violence and, uh, that plague the northeastern region of Italy. All right, in any case, I just wanted you to know a little bit about just how many people she was involved with. That is why she's in Venus. Uh, she seems to love love, but there might have been a little bit of lust, lust in there. In any case, Boko de Marseille, he's a poet from Provence, very similar to Arno Daniel, who we met in Purgatorio 26, who was also a love poet. The next person we meet in uh, Venus is more or less corporeal, essential reason, okay? He was a writer of love poems from or poems from Provence, and later a bishop of Toulouse. So he made a uh, he made a change in career uh, from being sort of a secular individual to becoming more of a sacred uh, one, a church a church official. And he uh, he uh, claims that he burned with an amorous desire beyond even Dido. Something interesting about a character we will see in the sphere of the sun named Saint Augustine, who was himself Franciscan like Saint Bonaventure, is that uh, he wrote a work called the Confessions and. And he's considered, you know, one of the great Catholic saints. St. Saint Augustine and um, St. Bonaventure and St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas are essentially the top three, I would say. Um, but St. Augustine said that he had a lot of trouble getting over his own lust. He really, really liked um, <clears throat> ladies. And he really liked the uh, dating and the things that went with it. And so it's sort of interesting, the connection between uh, religion, connection, and romance. Um, something to think about in idle hours. And so he's in heaven without shame, uh, and uh, just and each of these people were lustful or amorous, but showed their true faith through their actions. And so um, he is lustful in that he wrote love poems and was in love with love, but uh, uh, saw that he had a he had a deeper desire to see something true, something uh, more than just lust. Uh, Kunisa, even though she married several people, she wasn't simply giving into lust. She actually loved these individuals. She was a lover of people, and uh, the last person we're going to see is somebody who you would think would be especially subject to lust, given her profession. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. Her name is uh, Rahab. Um, but interestingly enough, there is another famous harlot in uh, the Old Testament. Her name is Jezebel. We, to this day, have uh, 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 an expression uh, to call somebody who is like a harlot a Jezebel. We do not call somebody a Rahab or a Rahab. Uh, why? Um, hmm, uh, I, I don't really want to explain this, but um, just to transition very quickly to Earth's conical shadow, this is uh, a, a schematic that shows you how shadow geometry works. You might have been wondering, well, why are these first three spheres covered by a shadow? The idea is the sun has to be behind the Earth, and the Earth sort of 
eclipses the three uh, spheres after it and shoots its shadow across them. That means that these are the three spheres where the stain of the earth, sin, lust, ambition, inconstancy, still has uh, some prevalence. The next uh, four cantos, or excuse me, spheres, will not have this earthly influence, and uh, they will take shape in a very interesting way because of this. Uh, there you go, if you're very mathematically inclined. Sine, uh, sine theta equals radius minus radius over distance. In any case, uh, I don't think we quite have time to go over this. I'm going to go over how does a sweet seed go fire, go uh, foul. So, uh, let me see, what, how much time do we have? We have very little time. Okay, I just want to say one thing about this to you, and then I need to get to Rahab for you. We're going to revisit this next lecture. The idea that Dante now shares here is that the stars influence you in this way. Your soul is literally sent down from one of these spheres of heaven by God with a plan for you. That's the idea. It gets down into you, it then embeds itself in you at the moment of uh, conception. That's the moment that you're sort of made as a little larva. Um, and then from there, you have to take it. You're either supposed to be like a great leader, great judge, a great warrior, or a, you know, a cobbler of shoes, whatever it is you are. You get the plan embedded in you. But what you become, unlike a tree, is not subject to the earth and the soil and the sun, but it's subject to your own personal choices. Now, obviously, there are things that influence you, teachers, parents, the time in which you live, the uh, social environment in which you live. Like, is there a war going on or not? Obviously, there are going to be more warriors during that sort of time. Um, but the idea is that even though you have a particular nature, it's up to you to make the right choices. And that's just a simple way of expressing that. But let's get to uh, Rahab before we uh, delve into that argument. All right, Rahab, a couple images. You can see that she's helping some spies get out of a city called Jericho. Okay, these are the last two slides of today. The last person that I'm going to mention here is the first person, and this is very dynamic, who was led into heaven by Jesus after the heroine of hell. She was a prostitute. Now, what's her story? She was a prostitute in this place called Jericho when a famous uh, Jewish warrior named Joshua was attempting to assault the city. Two spies were taken in, and she hid them when the city was looking for them, sort of like somebody hiding a Jewish person during Nazi occupation in either France or Germany. And um, she allowed them down with supposedly a red, uh, not vine, but rope, uh, so that they could escape from the city, deliver the information they had to Joshua, who would then attack the city, take the city, and then allow her to survive. Very similar, I would say, to what Helen does when Odysseus uh, sneaks into the city. And she doesn't reveal him. And then he steals the palladium with Diomedes. And then when he comes back into the city with Menelaus, Helen is not killed, but her husband very much is. Very similar story, I, I would say. Um, but because of this, she shows her true faith outside of her profession to uh, uh, what was at that time Judaism, but would uh, eventually be conscripted into Christianity, the Old Testament is part of the entire Bible, as it were. And uh, just the two weird things I want to say about her are these. She is described literally as, uh, oh, I can't get back, sorry. Uh, she is described literally as the brightest star in heaven, she's a prostitute, and she is the first person sent out of hell. And the big question I have for you, that I hope we can answer in seminar tomorrow, why? And now I will give you one interesting uh, historical detail. It is not the case that um, Jesus' mother was a prostitute, but it is the case, and you can check this in Matthew 1, 18, 19, 
that his mother became pregnant right after she became betrothed to Joseph, and he had not lain with her. The idea being that Joseph probably thought that she had done something similar to a prostitute, and he actually wanted to secretly divorce her because she would have been stoned to death otherwise, but he was told by an angel not to. So perhaps there is some connection between Jesus' affection for his mother and her situation and Rahab as well. Good work today, y'all.